2: Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are speaking to NFL Hall of Famer Eric Dickerson about his new book, Watch My Smoke. I interviewed Eric Dickerson earlier this week uh, for his book launch uh, with Haymarket Books, and I'm so excited to bring this interview to you right now. Oh my goodness, it's very good. Also, I've got some choice words about Novak Djokovic, Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, Eric Dickerson. So so excited to be doing this. So excited to be working with Haymarket Books to get uh, Eric's words and ideas and book out to the public. And without further ado, the NFL Hall of Famer himself, Eric Dickerson. Hello, how are you doing, sir?
3: Good, Dave. How are you doing, man? <laughs>
2: man, it's great to talk to you. Um, Thank you. I'm I, I'm I'm a little bit giddy, so I'll try to keep it down a notch. But <laughs> excited to be talking to you. Um, so this is something I always ask people when they write a book. I'm, why at this point in your life and at this point in your career, did you decide to put your life story out there for the public?
3: Well, I've been talking about it for years, uh, by doing it. Uh, I started one many years ago, uh, with a friend, um, and he passed away. So it just never, it never came to fruition. And then, um, this is probably this jump forward 15 years later. Um, I'm talking to my friend Gustavo Miguel and, um, some of the stories, because, you know, I hadn't known Goose for maybe three or four, about three years. Some of the stories and, you know, some things he heard me talk about. He's like, Eric, man, your, your life is, wow, it's just so interesting. You should do a book. And I've heard it before. So he said, I'm going to find you a writer. I'm going to find you a good writer. And, and he went out and uh, found me Greg Hanlon. And I got to say that Greg did a fantastic job. The book sounds just like me, my words. Um, I had some, I tried some other guys. Didn't sound nothing like myself. So but Greg Cannon and he, he caught me perfect.
2: Right on, yeah, it's a fantastic book. I'm not just interviewing Eric, everybody. I've read the book, Watch My Smoke. I mean, it's the best sports memoir I've read in years. So a strong suggestion for folks uh, to check it out. And if folks have questions as we're having this conversation, uh, just you know ask them in the comments section on the YouTube page. And we're gonna ask those questions more towards the end. But I get all the time with Eric uh, right now, so, haha. Um <laughs> I'll, I'll, I wanna walk people through the book a little bit because the first chapter, I mean, I, I was already fascinated. You were talking about your hometown, Sealy, Texas. The last census, census, I looked it up, Sealy had 6,000 folks near a city, Houston, 50 miles away. Uh, what was it like to grow up in
3: Sealy, Texas? Uh, You know, I got to say, I'm glad I grew up in a small town and um, it was different. Um, Not a lot to do at times, you know, it was really the country and I mean country, you know, one red light uh, only, but it's only 40 miles from Houston. Uh, That was that was a good thing. So I could always kind of go to Houston to visit my grandmother. But I I did enjoy growing up in a small town, small town setting. Everybody kind of knew everyone. Think about you're talking about in the 1970s. I grew up in I mean, I'm born in 1960, but you know, in the 1960s and 70s, um, I was uh, went to a seg I was in segregation, and I first started going to school. I went to the black school across the tracks, and um, the white school was up to, uptown. Um, even though it was small, it was still segregation. But we knew all we knew everyone, and I think that's the thing I liked the most is about how it was a it was segregation, but it still didn't feel like you was segregated, because you know, because it was just that little town.
2: So. Uh... White kids and black kids were separated in terms of where they went to school, but were, were, was there space for kids to be able to play sports together and
3: come together in Sealy? Yeah, 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 yeah it, it was. I mean, you know, when when say we didn't have Pop Warner and all that kind of. When I when I grew up, we didn't have Pop Warner. You could play only organized football. You got in seventh grade, so you know, I got a chance to go. To, uh, what we call it to the white school. I mean, I was in third grade. I think when I went to, first went to to the white school, uh, up, which was uptown. So in, you know you've kind of seen all the kids and you kind of knew we were all about the same age, and it, it almost seemed like we were never separated. Really, I mean I, I can think of one one incident in in particular. Uh, I was in I was in high school. Um, I think it was my freshman year in high school, and some of the you know some of the black guys and white girls liked each other and vice versa. Some of them, some of the black girls liked some of the white guys, and the white the the, the principal. Didn't want that to happen, and he, he called a meeting. Now that guy should call a meeting. Called, asked some of the parents to come in, and some of the parents came in. These are white parents, and they came in, and, and to the shock, they was like, "You can't tell our friends, our kids who to like and who to date." And I mean, that's a shocking. Think about this: it's a small town in Texas, who, who to like or who to date. And um, I thought that that was a real pivotal moment, you know, from being in the South in a small town and. Um, it was always kind of like that. I mean, I'm gonna say I'm not saying it was perfect. It wasn't a perfect situation, but I'm glad I grew up in a small town.
2: When were you first aware that there was even such a thing as segregation or such a thing as racism? When did that first appear towards you in a in a way that you understood it as, as a young man?
3: I remember it very well. The the, the how my mother said it's, it's different for you, Eric. It's gonna be different for you. You're a black kid, and and I'm like, Mama, you know people are, you know, people. She said, son, you don't get it. Because you got to understand, my mother, which was really my great great aunt, she was born in 1904. And, and she would she would tell me, Sarah, she said, I'm telling you, I've seen the, the cool and bad things that white people do. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen them cut a black man's private side and stick it in their mouth. I've seen them tar and feather him." She said, I've seen these things. And, you know, think about it. I'm a kid. I'm like, nah, that ain't true. <laughs> you, just, you know, because you, you couldn't imagine it. But uh, for for her and for me, I mean, it was just, it was a different world. I mean, and, and you know, the, the the segregation part, you know, like I said, I I didn't feel it until, I won't forget, we, we, I, I tried out for Little League Baseball. And uh, it was, you know, at, the, at the, the Little League Park, and it was only a few black kids who tried out, myself, Another kid and my cousin Bobby, Bobby Byers. Bobby was he was really light. Bobby he was he was really light. I was like a, a Hispanic guy, but he's my he's my cousin. And um, I hit three home, I had three home runs in the in the practice. I could run, I could throw, I could, and, and I won't forget. And they you know they called the names out. I didn't make I didn't make little league. I made my put me on minor league and I was crushed. But my cousin made it. Bobby made it. He was a good pitcher. And I won't forget when I when I went home and told my mother, she said, she said, I'm telling you son, because I knew I should have made it. And she said, I'm telling you, it's different for you son. But it make that story more funny is that like two weeks later, cause I was hit, I was hitting so many home runs in minor league, they moved me up to little league, and I made the all star team in the league. Hit, hit the only two home runs we had in our in, in our <laughs> in our in our game. So um, that was the first time that I'd really seen. It really is, like my mother said, it's different for you just because of your skin color. Mm.
2: Now, your mother, had she lived in Texas since her birth in 1904? Is that her entire yeah. life?
3: Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. She's from Texas. She's from Texas. Uh, I won't forget one time we were, we were, I didn't take, I didn't have this in the book, we were, we were driving. She's from Wallace. My dad was from Wallace a little town. It was about 10, 12 miles from Sealy. And she said, have you seen that land over there? I said, yeah. She said, that used to be our land. I said, really? I mean, it was a lot of land. I said, how much for as you can pretty much almost as you can see. She said about, you know, fifty eight because that was our land. Like really, she said, I said, what happened to it? She said, my dad killed a man. And she said, make a make the long story short. She said, um the guy, it was my dad, husband, they were friends. It was two black guys. But even more, even more my mom, my mother, she looked like a white lady, a little white lady, because her dad was half white and half black. And so my dad uh got into a fight with his with his friend. He's, he hit him in the head with some weighing scales. And my dad always said if I ever get if I ever get well, I'm gonna kill him. She said, "Make a long story short." She said that he got well. Uh, was going to town and think about this. This is funny because she said he took his buckboard to town. A buckboard? I'm like, a buckboard? It's like it's 1915, I guess, or 1918. She took his buckboard to town and saw him coming back. Think she was going. He was going to get him some some uh, some don't She says he's, go, he's gonna go dove hunting with his shotgun. And so when he came back, he ran across the guy. Ran across the guy, and he said the guy's name was Oliver Horse. She said that Oliver Horse was riding a horse, and he reached for his gun. My grand, my, my, said my dad pulled a gun and shot and killed him, and went to court. She said that, really, she said they didn't, they didn't care about two black men killing each other. She said they wanted our land, and the long story short is that you know they took our land to keep my dad out of prison. So.
2: Wow. Wow. I mean, in this in this context, I mean, you you had to reckon with with those stories and also uh you know still be a young person playing football living your life what 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 was that burden like uh to, to, to to hear that that your 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 great aunt your mom's stories while at the same time being young eric dickerson going out to the football field and
3: playing ball well you know i love sports i really did i love sports and um you know my mother didn't like football she liked baseball she liked that i ran track she wasn't a big basketball fan, but she always came to support me. And uh, she would say, Area, she said, you know, one thing is I don't I don't like football, but I, I'm I just feel like it's, it's a sport that you shouldn't play. It's not natural people be running into each other. <laughs> but she came and supported me. Uh, and you know, like I said again, it's just it's that small town mentality. You just you just in your in your little area. It's almost like being a, a college. You're just there. You know, nothing outside almost matters. You know, you know, you think about somebody. Living in a mansion, a big house, you know that in Hollywood. I'm in Sealy. That didn't happen for me. You know, being on back but for Black on being on Soul Train. That didn't happen for me. You know, uh, meeting Clint Eastwood when I met him. That didn't happen for me. I'm from Sealy, Texas. You, know, you just you just see Clint Eastwood on TV. That, that's all you see. But you know the, the 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 way my way out was through sports, and I didn't ever think it was be sports. Like i you know, I, I would get recruited and all, and then have the big hoopla and, and, and actually move to L.A. and go to Dallas and play college football. That wasn't, like I can honestly say, I knew I wanted more. I can say that. I always knew I wanted more because I always said that I wanted my mother to have a house like the white people had. I always said that I wanted to have a big two-story house like my friend, he was a white guy, Kevin Kubrick, he was my friend in high school. I want my friend to have a house like Kevin Kubrick's parents have. I, I wanted that. Now, how I was going to get it, I <laughs> have no clue. But I knew I always I always wanted that.
2: Was, was that the number one attraction for you to football? Is that it seemed like it could be a way towards those goals? Or did you have just like this this passion for the sport that totally outpaced your feelings about, say, baseball,
3: for example? Oh, no, no doubt. I, my, my feelings of football was nothing like it. I mean, the first time I played, I played a game in the, my seventh grade year. We played the Wall of Bulldogs, my first game. I mean, it got rained out. I was supposed to play on a Thursday. It got rained out. And we played it on a Saturday and I had six touchdowns. I never forget how nervous I was. And I, I just I loved it after that. That was it. I mean, I just fell in love with football. It was the the smell of the, the air. I couldn't wait for football season. Everything else was great, like track and everything, but football, that was it for me. I mean, and, and that's what made me just wanna play it. And then being from Texas, I mean that's that's football country. I just I just loved everything about it.
2: That was my next question. I mean, as someone who's been, been all across the country and seen football in many different states, what makes
3: football in Texas different than everywhere else? You know, I, I can't answer that. I don't know. It, it just, is different. Isn't it? It, it, it is different. And I'm going to tell you, I was just in Texas last week. And uh, I was in a, went to a town that's only about 20 miles from my home to Katy, Katy, Texas. And Katy has become a big big city in, in, in by outside of Houston. It really, and it was like my time. It was like 2,000 people. Mm-hmm. And my cousin said, I want to show you something. It's a, it's a stadium right here. It's a big, nice stadium. Beautiful stadium. And it was it's another it's another stadium about 300 yards away. He said, huge. They probably hold Think about high school stadium. About 40,000 people in the, in the stadium. I'm like, why they got them so close? He said, first of all, these are two different high schools. And just that many people want to watch high school football. I mean, wow. that's, that's just how it is.
2: Friday Night Lights. I mean, you were a high school star. You, you won a Texas State Championship. I've heard you call that the most meaningful sports experience uh, of your life. I mean, it, what what made that so special at that time? I mean, did, was the game still a game at that point in your life? I mean, is that what made it so special?
3: It was. It was. It was. A, it was still a game, and it was just like I talk about being from that small town. Us group of guys. Winning a state championship, in spite of a coach that we did not like, a lot of us did not like, white and black alone didn't care for him. But, you know, winning that state championship for our hometown, and and just just like I was telling you earlier about how small I'm, this town I'm from, Sealy, um, like I said, back then it was about 2,500 people there, you know, and in the 70s. And our state championship game, it was 25,000 people at that game. Now, where did all those people come from? I mean, that's the thing. You know, to watch a to watch a high school football game from a little town of of, of Sealy, from Sealy, from Sealy, guys from Sealy, Texas. Okay, so
2: you've got a couple of thousand people living in Sealy, and all of a sudden you're getting recruited by a couple of thousand colleges. <laughs> Practically a college for every person in town wants Eric Dickerson. What what was it like to be 17 years old and to be pursued by all of these schools? And how different was it from your just regular experience of living in Sealy and being, you know, Viola Dickerson's uh child.
3: It was it was really fun at first. I mean, I kind of got a kick out of it at first. And I'll say, when I say at first, I'm gonna say maybe like the first couple of weeks. And then after a while, it just became crazy. I mean, they would come, the coaches would come to your house, recruiters all time of night. Um, it was, I man, we got to have you. If I don't, if I don't get you, I'm gonna lose my job. I mean, you know, like, oh my gosh, don't put that kind of pressure on me. I mean. <laughs> I mean, it was it was crazy. I mean, you know that coach over there. You can't you know you can't trust him. You know he's sleeping with with all his assistants' wives and all. I mean, it just it was a. I'll point the finger at you and I'll tell you what he did and and if you go there, you'll never beat us. It was it was frustrating, but at the same time, I was so happy when it was over with. Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: I your time at. It- Southern Methodist University, SMU, is, is kinda legendary. I mean, there have been documentaries about the experience that you had at SMU. But before we get into all that, just first, I gotta ask you, looking back, do uh, you think you made the right decision as SMU? Is that the place Eric Dickerson was meant to go?
3: No doubt, for sure, 100%. You know, that, and I'll say this, that is the school that Viola Dickerson chose for me, and she always seemed to make the right decision for me. You know, I wanted to go to OU, that was my first choice. I mean, I and they came to my house and recruited me and I committed to to coach Switzer and I'll never forget my mother was really quiet and you know when they walked out, the first thing she said, you ain't going to school there. I'm like, Mama, nope, Eric, you ain't going there. She said, That man's a liar and I don't trust it. I'm like, oh, I said, I just committed to you. She said, I don't care. You're not going there. She said, You're Texas, boy. why you want to go to Oklahoma? I'm an old lady. You know, I'm not going to no Oklahoma. So so for sure. I, and 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 I'll never forget she said something. Later, because I, I called after my after my after my freshman year, not my sophomore year. I still want to transfer. I want to transfer to O.U. Still. So you know what? I said, I'm going to get home and talk to her about it. So I got home. I said, Mom, I just want to talk to you about something. She said, Yeah. I said, I want I want to transfer. She said, What? I said, I said I want. She said, Boy, she said, sit your ass down. And she took a piece of paper and she put a line down the middle. She put S.M.U. and other. She said, Okay. So you want to transfer? I said, Yeah. She said, So let me ask you a question. Do you have a scholarship at SMU? Yes, I do. Check. So are you guaranteed you'll get a scholarship if you go to this other school? What up? That's an X. So are you playing at SMU? Yeah, mom, I'm playing, but not. If that's a check. So are you guaranteed? And I mean, guaranteed you're going to put, what up? That's an X. So make a long story short, by the time she finished, it was all checks on SMU side and all X's on the other side. I said, boy, she said, take your ass back to SMU. She said, Eric, go back and make something. Do your own thing. She said, they will be talking about she said, You and that white kid, Craig James, they'll be talking about y'all forever. She said, make your own legacy. And I have to give her credit, Dave. I mean, she was she was right.
2: I mean, it's it's 2022 and we're about to talk about SMU and Craig James and the Pony Express. So <laughs> she she must have known what she was she was talking about. I mean, like all all due respect to you know, someone like say Tony Dorset, you know, we're not saying, What happened at Pittsburgh? Let's talk about it. You know. <laughs> Jackson State with Walter Payton. I mean, but but you at SMU is just so iconic. Uh, the the culture shock must have been very intense for you going to SMU. I mean, it's it's uh, it's in Dallas, Texas. It's got, got got a lot of wealth at SMU. I mean, what what was that like for you to be there?
3: That was, a- you, man, that, that I can say that was a big switch. Seriously, I mean, because I live close to houston so we lived closer i would go to houston so the city was not that big of a sh- change you know I, even, I lived in the country i'd go to houston you know i knew houston a little bit because of my mom and my my grandparents but going to dallas was and i can say this dallas and houston is total opposite even though it's texas like people in houston are different people that's all oh, i'm from. i'm from texas they houston's there <laughs> totally separate uh it was a shock i mean it was uh a, a white school, all white. I mean, pretty much all white only relaxed, That were pretty much the athletes. Uh, that was a big shock. And, you know, being in Highland Park, you know, the big houses, the and these are my mansions. I mean, um, it was it, it was it was different. But it was something that I think that I wish that every kid could get out of their small bubble that's that's small. Sometimes you live in a small bubble of something you've never seen, just to see it. What the world, what's, right, what's out in the world. Because if I had never went to SMU or any college, I may have never experienced that at all.
2: Mm. Wow. Um, you know, at, at SMU, uh, you shared a backfield with Craig James, as you mentioned. Uh, I mean, as, as someone who was such a star in high school, what, was that difficult? Was that frustrating? I mean, looking back, do you think maybe it was good for you that you went through that experience? Uh, what, well, I, what are your thoughts
3: I, now? At first, it was very frustrating. I think it was frustrating for him, too, because, you know, uh, because me and Craig had met before, you know, we even had signed at SNU and, and decided to go there. But, you know, they were told us we were going be possibly in the backfield together. But, you know, it didn't work out like that. We really weren't at the same time. You know, it was, it was we were rotating. And I didn't I didn't like splitting time. I mean, I, I just didn't like it at first. But I'll never forget. It was I think it was going to my junior year. And I said, Drayton, I said, man, because I, I desperately, and I talked about transfer, and I kept come back. And I, my friend, best friend, Charles Drake, he's in the book a lot. I told him, I said, man, I said, man, I just, I said, I'm getting messed over, man, I should be getting the ball more. And I'll never get his reply. He said, Dick, if you're as good as you say you are, he said, you'll do uh, more with less carries. And i never forget my reply to I said, I'm going to show you how good I am. Mm. And I, and, <laughs> and I, that season I did, I think I had 1,400 yards, spending time with Craig, and makes year, 1,600 yards. But, you know, I'm so glad I did because when I, I can tell you, when I got to the NFL, my body was not beat up. I had no injuries, had no surgeries. So it was the best thing that could have ever happened to me, and, and I think happened to him too. And Craig's still one of my best friends.
2: That's awesome. And you got that uh, decades of a shared experience together. I mean, bonds like that uh, do not break easily. Uh, so SMU, the Pony Express, can you pull it back for us a little bit and talk to us about the, shall we say, underground economy of the NCAA and how college football? Because, you know, right now there's so much talk about name, image and likeness and, you know, getting everything above board. But, you know, you were back in the Wild West days. Like, how did it operate? Give us a sense.
3: Well, pretty much operated. You know, if you made a deal with the with whoever with the, the alumni, the alumni would take care of you. You know, you got they say you got an envelope. You got an envelope. You know, every month. You know, whatever you negotiated, whatever you promised to get you, you got. And that's what I did like about my university. But you know the thing about it is, everybody was doing it. I mean, I knew guys from University of Houston was was getting money. I knew guys from Texas getting A and M. The most money that I never saw, but my mother had seen it. She said it was A and M. She said Eric. She said. They came to my house and talked to my mom, because AM's a big uh, and uh, see, a big Aggie town. It's right close to A&M. She said, she said, let me tell you something. She said they got fifty thousand dollars in a briefcase. I've never seen that much money in my whole life. She said, but we're not gonna take these people money if you don't wanna go to school there. I just won't do that. I'm not like that. And I and I, and, and we never did. We didn't never never take the money from them. But it was that's how it was. I mean, they would come with briefcases, bags full of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can say all the schools, all the schools did. It It kills me when and other universities say, oh, we didn't do that. We, you know, Texas didn't have to do that. Texans did it too. <laughs> AM and m did it. All, all of them did. We did it. We did it. We did it. All, all, of, all of them did it. So, I mean, when you came to SMU's parking lot, the players' parking lot, <laughs> our parking lot like a pro parking. Every guy, every, pretty much every starter and some backups had cars. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't jealousy. Like, you know, the 280ZX was the big car. I had a Trans Am. Craig had a 944 Porsche. My friend Harvey had a Lincoln come he had he had a, he had a, a, a Lincoln, Lincoln. Uh, so, so, so I mean, every guy had the car they wanted.
2: Wow. And the, the experience though, how does your experience with the Pony Express and SMU, how does that shape what your feelings are today about the NCAA, about whether players should be paid? Uh, how, how, has that, how has that affected uh, your perspective today?
3: Well, first of all, I've never liked the NCAA. I feel like they, they picked on us, you know, because we were a smaller school and we were beating the bigger schools and they didn't like that. That's that's just how it, that's how it went back then. And I think it's still like that today. Um, they want the bigger schools in the bowl games because they carry the most weight, most fans. Um, and I think the NIL, I think it's a great thing for the players. I think it's fantastic. I mean, because, understand this, these most players, pretty much all players, not most almost of them, a lot of kids go to college they don't go to college to graduate. I can say it's football players. They go to college because they got a scholarship. And they want to play football, and mostly they're hoping that they get a chance to go to the pros, which a very small amount goes to the pros. So if you have something that you can fall back on after you get out of college, something because you made that university and the NCAA billions of dollars, billions of dollars. What do you get? What are you getting out of? Oh, you get a scholarship and a, and a meal and an education. That's it. But you but you getting all this money. So I just feel like it's fair for, for the young guys and girls alike, you know, to to get to get paid. Um, you know, for playing football back in the 70s, you know, the 70s and 80s, oh, you football players, y'all get this, y'all, you know, they take you But you gotta understand. I always say this: When's the last time you saw 100,000 people go watch a swim match? When's the last time you saw 100,000 people go tailgate at a swim match? When's the last time you saw you know uh, 80,000 people go watch a baseball game? You know, it does not work like that. Football runs the university. The, the football is the power. That's that's why that's why all the money comes in, the boosters. They spend the money on, on the football programs. And my football pro- program, I got to say, we had some powerful boosters, and they loved our university. Mm.
2: And isn't some of that, too, like just the whole scene in Dallas in the 1980s? oil money coming out of people's <laughs> shoes and I've read I've read stories about like people who are SMU alums and Houston alums having big bets down at the country. That,
3: Club. That's exact. that's exactly that's exactly you got it so right that's exactly it because yeah. we'd hear about it I, I won't forget one, one one of my one of my alumni um good friend of mine Corky Campisi we played universe we the Campisi family we, he said I, he asked me say dick he said, y'all going to be Texas? I said, man, we're going to beat ass. And mm-hmm. I told him, Corky, I said, man, you know what? I said, my mother wants a color TV. He said, and I he said, i tell you what. He said, I got, a, I got a big bet I'm going to put on the game. He said, y'all win that game. He said, we've been arguing with these Texas guys. You win that game. We're going to get to go get that TV. Sure enough, we, I, my senior, we'll beat them 30 to 15. I went over to he said, well, let's go. <laughs> so <laughs> let's go get the TV. You know, that was something small, but that's just how it was.
2: Wow. So, you know, you get drafted. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it number three overall? No, number two. Number two overall. My bad. My two. That's okay. big, big error on my part. Number two overall. Uh, Los Angeles Rams. You get to your first training camp. Uh, what was the reaction and what, what were the differences between Rams training camp and, you know, life at SMU?
3: Ooh, different night and day difference. I mean, when I got to training camp uh, and I got there a few days late. Because, I, you know, I, uh, they couldn't get my contract together. Man, uh, it was two days. And I mean real two days. Where you were in pads in the morning. So you're in pads from, at practice started maybe 10 o'clock. Maybe, maybe 9, 30, 10. And you practice, you know, from 9, 30, 10 till like 12, 30. Almost 1 o'clock. That's the practice one. But you were in full pads. Hitting. Sometimes not always tacking, but always hitting. And it was grueling. I mean, those two weeks were grueling because we were in camp two weeks before the veterans showed up. And I'll never forget my, my first year, man. It was by week, I mean, by day 10. I mean, and think about that. Two days every day. Every day, You leave the meeting, the last meeting, you got to go to a meeting, you know, that night from maybe from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night. Then you get up and just do it, repeat the whole thing. So uh, it was about day 10. There was a guy named Otis Grant. He was a receiver from... Um, Michigan State. We had morning practice. I said, Otis, I said, man, I said this is crazy. I said, I'm out of here. He said, What? I said, Man, I can't do this. I said, This don't. I said, This don't even make sense. I said, This is stupid. He said, Well, I said, I said, brother, nice meeting you. I say, I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna pack my stuff and tell my mother I'm coming home. I'll never forget. He started. He said, I don't believe that. I said, I said, watch. I went back to my room. I called my mother, Viola. I said, Mom, I said, I said, I'm coming home. She said, What? I said. Yeah, she said, what do you mean you coming home? She said, y'all finished? I said, no, ma'am. I said, this is crazy. This is too hard. She said, oh, hell no. She said, first of all, Eric, I don't like football. She said, but she said, you ain't finna quit. She said, you ain't finna quit. She said, you're going to take your ass back out there and finish up. <laughs> and then I'm like, OK. So I, said, I go back out to practice, and I never get the first person I see was oldest. He said, man, I thought you were going to quit. I said, my mama wouldn't let me. So, <laughs> you know. Training camp was, was a lot tougher than then, many training camps. Oh, I could play, man, at 60 years old today if I had training camp like this.
2: <laughs> the book is called Watch My Smoke. It's amazing. The Eric Dickerson story. People can check it out at bookshop.org if you want to pre order it. Haymarket Books is the publisher. We're talking to Eric Dickerson right now. If people have questions, you can throw the questions down in the chat. We will get to them in just a moment. But first, I've got more questions, and now we're getting into my my childhood here, so this is all getting emotional, but I remember 1983, 1,808 yards. I mean, you were better as a professional than in college, and that just doesn't happen. I mean, you always hear that the pro game is much faster and there's this adjustment period. Why didn't Eric Dickerson have an adjustment period?
3: I did, trust me. It, it, didn't, it didn't come easy. I mean... My first couple of games, I struggled. I mean, I, I really struggled. Uh, struggled with, with fumbles. Struggled with, you know, the speed of the game. You know, missing assignments. You know, it was a lot. It's a lot. A lot of things happen on the field that you don't see as a fan. Like, you know, your assignment may be to the left, and you might be blocking the wrong guy because the defense had moved. I had I had, a, I had a lot of those. I mean, and and it was it was a struggle at first. I mean, even running the football was a struggle because the NFL is a lot faster than college. I don't care what some guys it's no it's not faster. It is it's, it's, it's a nice night and day difference but you know i kind of got a hold on it and i kind of got a hold on it early like i think it kind of kind of clicked in a, my like my fourth football game we played the uh, new york jets in new york and uh i had an 85 yard touchdown run and from the, almost from that point on things kind of slowed down i mean because i remember going over on that flight with my buddy leroy irving because he I was eric man because me and him argued about who was the fastest. I said Leroy, you cannot outrun me. I said I'm telling you, I'm faster than you. So we'd argue about it, and we did have a race, and I did beat him. So we going over, and he said it was a guy named Holmes, the defensive back. He said, Eric, "If you break Holmes, he's a defensive—he run a fourth three. He could catch you." I said, "Leroy, he going to catch me." I said, "I'm telling you, I'm fast." So sure enough, sure enough, what happens? The second play of the game, toss left. I break down the sideline. Who's chasing me? homes <laughs> and so I was like that was like the moment like like wow like yeah you know I can play this game and and I had my in that same game I had my aha moment in football like when man this is the NFL it was it was in the third I think it was third quarter um the light the lights had just clicked on is an O'Shea stadium you know it was it like the smoke coming down and the, the lights on the, the rim around the lights like the smoke around the lights and the sun is going down, and we're about to break the huddle. And it was Benny called a pass play, and we breaking the huddle. He looked at me, said, "Eric, he said, if I don't see anything, after I was running a swing route, which is swing route is a route to swing outside. He said, if I don't see anything, I'm gonna come to you. I said, okay. And uh, sure enough, I, I, I we dropped back, and all I I'm, I'm out in my swing. All I could see is his head going left to right. And I see the horn just turning left to right, left to right. And all of a sudden, I see his arm come over the top, and the ball came out before the ball came to the air. I'm like, wow. This is the NFL, <laughs> and that was my like like big moment. Like, and I caught the pass. I think I picked up like 20 yards. So I'm like, man, I just
2: I just loved it. That's awesome. I mean, and your look was also like something we just really hadn't seen before. I mean, the the rec specs, the neck roll, the boxy pads. <laughs> I mean, the the the, the, the hair was. <laughs> I, mean, I I just other, other than the hair. Does it surprise <laughs> you that other people haven't adopted your look? Because it so clearly worked for you, and you don't see a lot of running backs uh, pad up the way you did. No, does that, no. that surprise
3: you? No, it doesn't surprise me, because people used to say when I played, man, how you wear all these pads, man? Hey, you, you don't feel heavy. I'm like, no, it, it didn't feel because I did in Because I did the same thing in college it didn't bother me at all. You know, I had to, I had to reinforce shoulder pads. I wore the flag jacket under my, under my pads. I wore the thigh pads. I wore a knee pad. I wore, I wore hip pads. I wore the, the butt pad. I had at one point, I even wore the shin guards when I first started playing. I had my elbow, I had my elbow pads, my tape, my, my big mouthpiece, the goggles, because I couldn't see. And, um, you know, that was, that was my look.
2: Mm, it's
3: a great look. And then,
2: you know, so you have eighteen hundred and eight yards, then the next year, the famous number, two thousand one hundred and five, top of the world. Were there any defenders or any defensive teams that scared you in nineteen
3: eighty four? Not scared you, but you know, it was certain teams that were known to be physical. And I tell you, one of those teams was the New Orleans Saints. You know, they were a physical football team. They had the line, they called them the Soul Patrol. Mm-hmm. You know, Jackson, Pat Swilling, there, they Sam Mills, they, they, had, they had a great defense over there, but couldn't, couldn't move the ball. And, and I never forget. It was after uh, my, my, I think, my second year. Uh, me and Ricky Jackson are sitting at the at the at the Pro Bowl, sitting down it's a a, a wall. We just, you know, just sit down and talk. And me and Ricky kind of became friends. You know, he played defense, and back in those days, you know, you didn't become friends with defensive players. Just nah. So we sitting there talking, and he says, he said Eric, he said man, I'm gonna t- I gotta tell you something, Eric. He said we first saw you. He said, um, "He said, oh, he likes to run high. He likes. To, he think he, he run pretty. We gonna break his big ass. That's what he said. He <laughs> said, man, I gotta tell you something, man. He said, man. He said, the harder we hit you, the harder you ran. And and that was my mind. I felt just like that. I knew they were trying to break me. I knew that because they were talking to me. And I'm like, I'm from the country, dog. I mean, it don't it don't work like that for me. And at that same moment, he had, he had told me because I didn't know what the Hall of Fame was." He said, he said, man, if you keep playing like you're playing, you're going to go in the Hall of Fame. And I didn't say anything. I just kind of wait. I'm like, "Go well, maybe you'll attend what the Hall of Fame is. I didn't know what it was. So I said, Rick, I said, man, what's the Hall of Fame? He said, Eric, you know what the Hall of Fame is? I said, I said no. What is it? He said, it's where, if you're one of the greatest football players ever, it's a, it's a hall. Like like they have a, like they have your bus and, and, you know, there's a shrine. I said, "Like a, like a a like a school bus? He said, no, man, not no school bus. (laughs) He said, a bus? I'm like, oh, okay. Like, you know, a statue statue here. I'm like, oh, okay. So that was my first uh, uh, time when somebody explained the Hall of Fame to me. and, And told me that, you know, felt that I was a great player.
2: Wow. Excuse how specific this question this is, but does it feel different when you get hit by, say, a Ricky Jackson or a Lawrence Taylor, or is just getting hit suck and getting hit is getting hit is getting hit?
3: Uh, getting hit is just getting hit. And it depends on how they catch you and, and, and where they hit you at, you know, because a lot of times, you know, they hit me somewhere. I, I didn't have a pad, but, you know, those guys, they're trying to hit through you. That's how they would talk back. You. you know, they could they hit with the crown of their head. You know, they were hitting, they were hitting through you. So getting hit is just getting hit. Mm.
2: You were not just young and famous, but you were young and famous in the 1980s in Los Angeles, and that's a very specific and particular kind of context there. Just what was it like just to be young, famous, in LA of the 1980s, and being a young, probably one of the most prominent black men in Los Angeles, along with people like Eddie Murphy. I mean, what, what what was that like?
3: Man, it was nothing like it. I can say, you know, I, I won't forget. I met Jim Magic Johnson my rookie season. We met him at that Venice Beach. We went down to the beach from training that day off of training camp and rode down and I saw a yellow rose Roy- Royce and they had Magic on. Him. I'm like, man, it was that Magic Johnson's car. And sure enough, he saw it. You know, we saw him walking around a big crowd of people around him. I'm like, man, I want to go say something to him. So we go up in and introduce ourselves, and he said, I, I know who you are. You know, you're the first round draft pick. I said, yes, sir. He said, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'm a fan. He said, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan, too. And uh, that was fantastic. I mean, I won't forget, a couple of months later, I went to a basketball game. Our doctor was Dr. Curlin, was the same doctor as the, the Lakers doctor, was our doctor. He said, Eric, you want to go to a Laker game? I said, sure, I'll go to a Laker game. I mean, I wasn't a big basketball fan, but I was, you know, I like magic. So uh go to the go to the Lakers game, the guys on the team said, Man, Dr. Curlin sits on the floor. Now I didn't know what the floor was, you know, he sits right on the wood. Uh, so I'll get that. I'm sitting right there <laughs> on the wood. I'm like, Wow, man, this is a trip. I mean, it was a trip. I mean Magic, Kareem. I mean, uh I can't think of some of the other Laker players. Um, I mean it was uh, things worthy. I mean just all the guy I'm like, wow, Byron Scott. I'm like, man, this is a trip. So Magic came over, shook my hand, you know, and then Kareem, all the guys came over and shook my hand and uh, they gave me a standing say, say my name on the PSA. My, I'm, I'm at the game and a standing ovation. I was so embarrassed. But that is just how LA was. I mean, LA, they they really embraced the stars. I mean, that's that was that city. I mean, then, I mean, I won't forget a couple of like months later. I met a Clint Eastwood at a, at a restaurant, and I, I saw him sitting there. I'm like, that's Clint Eastwood. And I knew the owner in the place called Nikki Blair's. And he said, I said Nikki, I said, man, is that? he said, oh, yeah, he'd like to meet you. I'm like, no. He said, no, okay, come over. So I remember I walked over, and before I got to him, he said, hey, Eric, how's it going? He said, I'm a big fan. I said, Mr. Eastwood, I'm a big fan, too. You know, we talked a few minutes, and uh, that was just, uh, that's just how L.A. was. I mean, L.A., even the the stars there, they were respectful to other stars. I'll say that. Probably a little bit more, it's it's a little different now.
2: Wow. I mean, what, what people might not understand is that you played for the Los Angeles Rams, but the LA Rams were in what was comparatively conservative Orange County. <laughs> what What were the differences between multicultural Los Angeles and conservative Orange County? Like, what, what What did you What did you learn about Orange County in your time at the Rams?
3: Man, Owens County, I just got to say, was really, really white. I mean, like, like wow. Like, you always see you no know black people. <laughs> like, I mean, you, you got, when you see one, like, hey, man, black guy. Hey, all right. One of them look like me, and he don't play football. I mean, that, that's what it was pretty much like. I mean, so, I mean, I really didn't like Orange County that much. I mean, it, Owens County is beautiful. I mean, I got to say that Newport Beach and all those place are beautiful. But I just had a, I was drawn to Los Angeles. I wanted to live in L.A., um, I I looked for a house for like a year and a half in, in, in L.A. to try to find a place, and I finally found my house in Calabasas. Uh, when Calabasas was nothing, you know, nobody wanted to live in that. You know, eyes nah, too far. Um, and I'm still I still living I still live in Calabasas, and I was glad to move to L.A. because it was just so diverse. I mean, it was black, it was Latino, it was Asian, it was Persian. You know, it was it was some I had never seen Samoan. Ever, I didn't know what a Samoan was. I never, mm-hmm. I never get that. We're at a club, and this guy comes in. I'm like, God dang, that's the biggest Mexican I've ever seen. He said, that's not a Mexican. That's a Samoan. I'm like, What is a Samoan? I mean, once again, from the country. I'm like, What's a Samoan? Oh, it's all this from Samoa. In fact, my best friend Charles Drayton, his wife is Samoan. My godson is Samoan. I mean, I had no clue, but it was just LA was just way different.
2: Wow. Now. It seemed like you were going to be an LA institution for the, your entire career, but in your prime, you go to Indianapolis. Now, can you explain to people, how, even understanding, like how do you go from being a Los Angeles Ram to being at the to to going to it at the time was one of the sorrier franchises in the sport <laughs> over in but, Indianapolis?
3: Well, they tried to send me. He tried to send me to to Siberia. You know, really just tried to kill my career. I mean, that's what John Shaw said he was going to try to do, basically, because you know I wasn't, I wouldn't, ju- I wouldn't jump in line, basically, and I was, I wanted to get paid. And I, look, I wasn't trying to like break the bank; it wasn't even like that. I just was getting paid unfairly. I mean, and it was very evident. I mean, that I was paid unfairly. I mean, I was making one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and I was a second pick in the draft. And I mean, John Elway and Marino, I mean, I compare myself to quarterback; they were making a million dollars. I mean, I'm like, just pay me something close to that. And so it just, it never worked out with them, and I want, I mean, I want to stay in LA. I really want, I didn't want to leave LA. And I won't forget one of the last times I met with John Shaw about my contract. I said, And this is just how bad I wanted to stay. I said, John, I said, I'll tell you what. I said, first of all, I came in and I, I said, and I told him, you know, uh, what kind of year I had. He said, no, Eric. he said, now he always has, he has a nasally voice because I, 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 I'm doing audio books. I'm doing his voice in the book. <laughs> I said, I said, I said, John, I left the league in Russian again last year. No, you didn't, Eric. Walter Payton did. I said, John, I led the league in rushing. No, Eric. I said, John, I had 18-21, 14 touchdowns. Let me, let me see. He goes and uh, whenever he opens the... Oh, you did. I went to punch him. I'm like, you mug. You know I led the league in rushing. And so, you know, I said, John, I said, i tell you what. I said, I am so confident in my ability and our offensive line. Now, think about it. I said, if I have fifteen hundred yards, not a thousand, I said 1,500, 1,500 yards or more, you will pay me like um, like a, I want, I like a million five, like like the quarterbacks make. And he said, we're not going to do that. Wow. I said, I said I'd go year by year. We're not going to do that. He said, you have a contract. I said, well, and I just said this thing, it ain't going to work. I mean, and so eventually, it just it just got worse and broke down, and you know, and I ended up getting traded to Indianapolis now. That was a whole different animal, that boy. Let me tell you, man. It is. Whew.
2: Yeah. And my, my next two questions really are about uh, infamous franchise uh, uh, majority owners. Uh, one of them, <laughs> Robert Ursay in Indianapolis. And then Al Davis, when you went to Los Angeles, back to Los Angeles to play for the Raiders. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what Robert Ursay was like?
3: Robert Ursay, he wasn't. He was never, like, really cool to me, like, like until the one time he came to the party, to, to, you in the book, it's how he comes to the party drunk. And uh, he comes in, and he always had these two guys with him, like, I would call them his handlers, and his, his, his party was in, in his barn. Go, had, they, they made you go to the party in his barn. And he sees us. He comes standing on. We say, hey, how you guys doing? How you doing, Mr. Ursa? How you doing? It was me and uh, Clansford and two other guys, two other black guys. Let me tell you guys a joke. Let me tell you guys a joke. Okay, Mr. Ursa, tell us a joke. So then he starts to joke off just like this. He says, you got a kike, you got a nigga, and you got a wet back. And I said, fuck that shit. I mean, they're like, oh, sorry. Sorry, guys. Come on, come on, boy. come on, come on, boy. come on. You know, they they take him away. I'm like, I'm like, I'm out of here. I said, I said, this is crazy, man. I said, bump this. I left, and then I get back. You know, the next morning, somebody called me in and said, Hey, Eric, I heard what happened with Bob I said, Man, that's unacceptable. I mean, I mean, I never said it to anyone else. It's, you know, the team we talked about on the team, but that was it. But you know, Mr. Ursa was just a different kind of guy. I mean, he was way different. Uh, I didn't like the way he treated his son. That's not my son, Jimmy. I like I like Jimmy a lot, Jimmy Ursay. I think he's done a great job with the Colts organization. I think they're, that's why they are where they are today because of Jimmy Ursay. But, man, Bob Ursay, mm-hmm, no. No, my, my
2: wife's family's from Baltimore. So, you know, we don't even say Robert Ursay's name without. Uh... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: they, they took their coats, y'all. Without, day.
2: Yeah, without doing a little religious gesture.
3: Um. Well, what about Al Davis? I mean, you know, been, you know, the- you know Al, Al, Al just was different. He, he, he you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a writer. You know, he he, he was just a guy that, to me, the, the league had kind of passed him by. And he was still trying to run the team like like he was coaching. Like he would call down and, you know, because I remember times I'd be playing. And because they were told when I came there that, you know, they were going to trademark us and I was going to be the guy. And they didn't trade Marcus, and and me and Marcus, you know, we became friends much later. We weren't friends then; we became friends much later. But I didn't like how they did him. I mean, I just went because I thought that you know Marcus was such a great Raider, you know, playing for that Raider organization, having to win a Super Bowl, and I just didn't see what was the deal. And I, some still not sure what the deal was with, with him and Marcus, you know. But you know, Al was he he, he ran he ran how he wanted to run it. That, that's the best way I could put you put it to you. And and it wasn't it wasn't done smart all the time. Yeah.
2: And then, you know, you retired due to a neck injury. Um, can you speak to uh, our audience about what toll the game has taken on your on your body and, and on your mind?
3: Oh, man, it, 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 you, you beat up. I mean, when I, when I retired, um, and I, and thing is, is, the teams don't tell you the truth. Back then, I don't know. They, they, they didn't tell you the truth. I didn't know the severity of my neck injury until I saw a doctor in Green Bay and then came back and saw Dr. Robert Watkins here in L.A. And and he told me, he said, Eric, he said, um, you probably should stop playing football. And I, both guys said the same thing. He said, it's not a matter of fact of if it's when it's going to happen. He said, if you keep playing, he said, you're going to end up, you're going to die on the field or you're going to paralyze up from the neck down. He said, oh, those are the options. And at that point, that was it. I mean, he said that because, you know, you, the team, t- oh, no, it's just a burner. You know, it's just nothing. It's just a nerve ending. That's all it is. But when they got deep into it, that they, they found out I had more going on. Um, you know. It's it's tough as an NFL player when you play that sport. I mean, like my mother said, it's not, it's, it's unnatural. You beat up. Uh, you know, I don't sleep. i taught me to sleep at night sometimes. Um, I'm not going say I have CTE, but you know, my memory is not what it was. I mean, and I, I know that for a fact. I mean, because you know, I go to think about go to say something. I'm like, what was I gonna say? Or even somebody somebody call. I call someone on my phone, and sometimes if I look at it, look away, I forget who I'm, who I'm talking to. I mean, just stuff like that. And I know it seems small, but, you know, for me, a reason, one reason I, I'm glad I wrote this book, because I don't know, maybe 10 years later, five years later, I won't remember this stuff. I, I won't remember it, you know, and I hate to say that's just that's just the facts. I saw the, uh, the great Gail Sayers. I saw it happen to Gail. I mean, and and, and, and and it was sad to see it. I seen, I've i seen it happen to my friend Tony Dorset and it's sad to see it. And, um, you know, that's just, that's the, and people will say, the well, you knew what you were getting into. You had no idea what you were getting into. None at all, because we had no data, we had no data in football. How we know? We, you know, you're going to get probably inherited knee, knee injuries, you know, that's all How's your knees? My knee, I never had a knee problem. I've never even had a surgery, thank God. But you didn't know what you were getting yourself into till after, you know, and that, that's, that's the big thing. If you'd
2: known everything, if you'd had every bit of data, uh, do you do it all again?
3: I'll say this. Um, and I've been asked that question a couple of times. I played football because I loved it, and I loved it so much. And I, I'm say I probably I would say yes, but the main reason I know I would do it again, is no doubt, to take care of my mother. That's a, that's a no brainer. And she she would tell me, Eric, I don't want you playing this sport to take care of me, but that see, I would uh, no doubt I would do it again for her for sure.
2: You know, a lot of players have a very tough time after retirement, uh, particularly when it's done in a way that's not necessarily by choice but by injury how was that for you how was the transition to
3: for lack of a better term civilian life for you at first it was tough because you know you, you get used to playing football that's all you know your whole life you know being a part of a team you know traveling with the team um you know you have a structure you know i'm structured anyway but you have a, a structured life uh, and then it's now well what are you gonna do outside of football what am i doing gonna do now it's like dang you know i don't have nothing to do today you know i like you get up at Ten o'clock. Okay, what am I gonna do today? I don't know. And I mean, I not I hadn't picked up golf yet. So I mean, but, you know, it was really boring at first. I got to say. I mean, it was it was almost like a lonely life. You know, of an ex football player. It's almost like you go to to football haven just die and waste away. Um, mm. But that's how I felt at first, really, because some of my guys, some guys, my guys were still, some of my friends were still playing football when I retired. A few were still playing, and I didn't have a hobby. I had nothing to do. You know. And then that's when I got the job on Monday Night Football, which I was terrible at. But, um, you know, I just started getting stuff that I like to do. I like Like, like I, I do a radio show now. I mean, I love my radio show. I love I love doing radio show. But I love radio. Um, so, you know, and you, you find it. You kind of find your niche. You really do. I mean, if, if there's a niche for you uh, and I'll say this much here, too. And, and one thing is, is it's how your name is. My, my dad would always say this to me. He says, son. I always keep have a good name. It's a good name carry a long way. And in spite of how the writers used to try to portray me as this bad guy, they call me the ingrate and the malcontent. Words, I didn't even know what they were. I mean, I had no clue what they were when I was a kid, and playing football. You know, I know what kind of person I, I was. I am. And uh, I always had a good name. People knew me knew. Man, if you ask Eric now, he's going to tell you the truth. He's a, he, he straight up, you know, and that's me. And I've never, I've never changed from that, going back to my playing days. Yeah.
2: I mean, and, and now uh, you're known as the, the Ram-bassador. As
3: well. um, <laughs> yeah, Skip, Skip Bayless gave me that name. <laughs> yeah, Skip Bayless.
2: Um, first, um, how did you reconcile with the Rams? Can you talk to us about that, about how that happened? And then, you know, as the ram ambassador, I feel obliged to ask you, you know, there, there are still folks who say football can't work in L.A., that you know, it's not Cleveland, that there's too much to do, too much to see. You got the beach, you got the mountains, you got a million other teams that people love. Pro football, there's just no place for it. Uh, in Southern California, uh, what, what do you say to the folks who doubt the, the possibility for, and I really want to put this right like a rabid LA fan base, Midwestern <laughs> style, Texas style, in Los Angeles?
3: Well. You know, I'm going to say this one. We have some great fans here in L.A. I mean, fantastic fans. Um, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go way back. When the Rams, were in, when, when they were in Los Angeles in the 60s, when they first came in the 40s and the 50s and 60s and 70s, the Rams were the team. They were the team. They were the hot team. They played in the Coliseum. Because I didn't realize that until you're talking to guys that played for the team. Like Deacon Jones would tell me. Jackie Slater would tell me. Jack Youngblood would tell me. You know, all those, Nolan Crum, all those great players that played for the Rams, they said, man, let me tell you, when we played in L.A., man, we'd always had a sellout house, always. He said, we moved to Anaheim, he said, stuff changed. He said, we, we lost our fan base because a lot of people did not want to come to, to Anaheim. We lost our identity because, you know, Orange County, when she won, it was mostly all white. I mean, in L.A., had Hispanic, they had Latino, had Black, they had all kinds of fans. They had all kinds of fans, you know. They had the, the guy, the, the scruffy-looking guy, the guy, you know, the, you know, just people. He lived for his, for the Rams. They they lost that, and then when they moved to St. Louis, they really lost it. They stayed mm-hmm. away for twenty-two years. I mean, that was a big part of it. But coming back to L.A., I think it's a process, and I gotta say, the fans have done a fantastic job so far. I mean, they really have. The Rams have even done a better job in the last couple of years of. Integrate themselves back into the city when they first came back. I thought they just did it. Eh, okay But but now I would say they, they've done a really good job of Kind of embracing the city and the city embracing them But you know one thing winning takes care of all that mm. People want to see a winner that, that, That's it. I mean if you win it's like that you win people want to see you look we may never have the fan base the Cowboys have that the Steelers have that the Raiders have but we were most definitely we have we have we have a great fan base and I mean that makes that makes me very proud. Um the Rams and, and for us being the Rams ambassador you know. Um Skip Bayless gave me that name. Um, you know, but I'm the voice I try to be the voice of, of, of reason, you know, with the with the team and the players. Um, you know, and I just give my opinion. When I'm on there, I, I give my I get my true opinion. Because one thing about me is I'll tell the truth about even myself, if I feel like it's something i I've, I've done to hurt my team or I shouldn't have said that. I'll, I'll say it. I mean, I still go back to, 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 to the worst football game I ever played. That I, I killed my team in, and I still remember to this day. We played the Washington Redskins in the playoff game. I had three fumbles. Man, I, that ball felt like I was trying to hold on to a greasy egg. I mean, I'm like, I don't know what it was that day, but, and, and that, bo- that still bothers me. So, and I said, I feel like I lost the game, and, and I, and I took responsibility for it. But, you know, that's just, that's who I am. I mean, that's who I am, even though we didn't play well. But, yeah. Um, that's just that's football, you know. That's that's the fo- that's the life of being a football player, uh, and I would have had had it done no other way. Yeah, you're you're very tough on
2: yourself. I didn't think you were bad on Monday Night Football either. Oh, I was terrible. I <laughs> I, I, mean,
3: I love working with the crew. I
0: love
3: with yeah. All oh, loved it, but man, oh, I was horrible. I mean, I'm not good with them little feel good stories. I mean, I, I feel like <laughs> that's for. You know, let the let the ladies do that. <laughs> and I cool. I think I think the, the girls do a great job on Monday outside. I think they do a fan. I I'm, sometimes mm-hmm. I even listen what they got to say, some of the stories. But that's not that's not me. I'm, I'm a guy want to talk. You know, talk football.
2: It, it's a tough it's a tough gig being a sideline reporter for sure. Very very tough. People don't realize that. Um, if you could just a couple of quick questions before I go to the audience. If you could change anything about the NFL, what would it be? If you had a magic wand, what would you change about the league?
3: How they take care of the players. Our, our union is horrible. The NFLPA is terrible. I, I think that, you know, it's such a great league, uh, and and how, you know, some of the players, you love the sport, you love the teams you play for, but you don't like the establishment. And, and the way they treated NFL players you know they they come back and they'll do something when it's when it's it's a bad look for them the NFL does not want to look bad but hey all of us have bad looks sometimes we're not perfect by no means and i'm not saying they have to be perfect but just do a better job of, of, of taking care of the guys who made the game great i mean i and i say that because i will never forget when deacon jones was alive i, I went to see him this was this was 10 years before he passed away he was in the hospital and i went to, i went to visit him I stayed there pretty much all day. Just because Deacon had the greatest stories. Just sitting there talking to him, and he said, "Eric, it's how old are you?" I said, "I'm I'm fifty, Deacon." I said, "I'm an old man." He said, "Son, he said you're a young man." He said, "He said when you get to be in your seventies like me, then your then your ass is old." And he said, "Eric, I said you take your pension yet?" I said, "No, I don't take my pension yet." He said, "You know what it'll be?" I said, "I don't know, maybe twelve, thirteen hundred bucks. I don't know." He said, "You know how much I get, Eric?" I said, "No, Deacon." He said, "I get two hundred and fifty funky dollars a month." What am I going to do with $250? That blew my mind. I mean, I'm like, that's it? He said, yeah, I get $250. Stuff like that, the pension for the NFL, is just it doesn't compare with the with the Major League Baseball and basketball. Those are the only things that I just wish that we did a better job of just taking care of our players.
2: Mm. I mean, John Mackey, uh, his wife, legendary in terms of how she took, and John Mackey's one of the reasons why there even is a union uh, in the first place. Wow, that, that's powerful. Um, but before I get to the audience questions, just, just one last question. As, as you're no doubt aware, you know, this book, which is so good, Watch My Smoke, it, this book is already stirring some things up and generating some controversy. Uh, are, are you comfortable in that role? of uh, stuff <laughs> like this, or is, is it a little uncomfortable?
3: I've always been controversial, supposedly, and I wouldn't even be controversial. You know, in, in my book, all it do is just tell the truth. I mean, I'm not making anything up, I'm not lying about anything. So so I, I have nothing to be, uh, you know, worried about, because this is this is the world we live in, it's the truth. It's, 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 it's hatred, it's, it's prejudice, it's people who get along, it's people who don't get along, it's guys that I played with, I, t- I talked about guys on my team I played with that I didn't like. You know, they didn't, they didn't put the work in. They, 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 they didn't care. I mean, it's, it's it's hurtful to see a player with talent say, I don't care, man. Well no, we lose I just want to get my paycheck. Man, what I'm like, you don't have pride. I mean, to me, I was prideful. I wanted to be the best. My dad taught me that. Son, if you're gonna be the best, if, if you're a janitor, be the best janitor there is. If you're gonna be a football player, be the best football player there is. And I feel like that's the way I try to live my life. I try to be the best I can possibly be. Mm. Well,
2: you've been incredible in this conversation. Very much appreciate it. We do have some questions from some folks listening. So if you don't mind, I'll ask you a couple of those. And uh, I'll be skipping through these. I might not ask every question. I'm saying that to the audience out there because we have many for me to read. And I'm not going to hold Eric up like that. Uh, but Ricardo wants to know that when you were putting together the book, uh, were there any parts of your life that you found difficult to talk about or that you really thought very hard before including because it was, uh, it was a difficult process to put it to paper?
3: Uh, yeah, some, some of it. I mean, I, I can say it was some that, that brought back memories um, about my relationship with my real mother that my, basically my sisters ruined. I mean, because me and my mother was so tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very hurtful. I mean, it was points, and even talking about it to the writer, that I broke down and started crying because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I was tight with my mom. And, and I said my real mother, not my, my adopted mother, but I was tight with both of them. That, that you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to, to, to put yourself out there talking about family members, but it was the truth. And it was an ugly truth. I mean, mm-hmm. it was ugly truth when, when, when your family members, who are basically jealous of you, say that, you know, oh, you were a bastard, you know, you're a bastard child, you know, and that kind of stuff. It, it's, it was hurtful, but, you know, it is what it is.
2: Yeah. Um, a- another question is about the pitfalls that so many athletes uh, became victim to in the 1980s. Uh, and we all know from, from drugs to scandal, to, I mean, so many athletes uh, went down that path in the 1980s. How are you able to avoid the pitfalls?
3: You know, that's a great question. I'm going to tell you how. Viola Dickerson. I'll never forget when I came to L.A. She said, she she we, we talked on the phone. She said, boy, let me tell you something. Do not go out there and embarrass yourself and embarrass us and your name. And I said, yes, ma'am. I, I never did drugs. You know, like anybody else, you know, you chase girls and do that kind of stuff. But I, I never did any of that crazy stuff.
2: Mm. Um, another question. Looking back on your career, what teammate had the greatest impact on you?
3: I had a couple of those guys, uh, Jackie Slater for sure, um, my friend Leroy Irving, but I wouldn't say as a teammate. I, you know, I would have to say the person who had the greatest impact in my life probably was not in my mom. Was most definitely was my dad, and, and and I only had it for a short period of time. My adopted dad, you know, just just the, the lessons that he taught me, you know, it was. Was the, I, I've always, some of his sayings I still have today. I mean, so for sure it would be my dad. Mm.
2: Next question, and these are coming at you from all over the place. Uh, you know, it's a very bad situation right now in the NFL with regards to the hiring of black head coaches. Uh, just saw Brian Flores let go in Miami after two straight winning seasons. Uh, do you have optimism, though, for the future of the pipeline so we could see some black power in suits and not just in uniforms on the football field.
3: Man, I would like to say I hope so, you know, but it's tough. It is tough. I mean, and sometimes you have to play the hand you dealt. Uh you can't complain about it. And, I, and that's the thing you see about by, by, by black people. Us, as, 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 as 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 who we are, sorry the phone. Is that, cool. that we want all we want all we want is stuff to be is, is fair. That's it. You just want it to be fair. No no more, no less and hopefully one day that it will make it fair because right now, it's not fair.
2: When Brian Flores was fired, did you do a triple take? Yeah, I'm like,
3: huh? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, what the hell? I mean, what a guy, what a brother got to (laughs) do?
2: Yeah, they started 1-7, finished 9-8. and I mean, it was, I don't even understand it. And one more question for you is, just, you know, we're living in the time of COVID, of course. And I would want to ask you, how do you feel like the NFL has handled uh, the pandemic? And you were a commissioner, what would, you, would you have done anything differently?
3: Well, you know, they've done the best they can, with it, but it's funny because they pick and choose. It's like they're going to get them games in. <laughs> they they want to get those games in. They're like, hey, if you don't feel any symptoms, we don't, we're not going to test you now. That's almost like if, you're not, if you don't feel bad, no problem. You got your shot, you're good. So I think I think they've done the best they could do with with, with the COVID
2: deal. Wow! And one last question from me, Eric, uh, especially because you, you were at that incredible cultural moment, LA, 1980s. What mus- what musical mm-hmm. artists would you choose to be the soundtrack of your life?
3: Oh, that's man! I've never had a question like that. Mm, I'd have to have two artists because they're so different. It. They're I too know. different. I'd, <laughs> have to ha- I'd have to have. Oh man. Can I have three? Give me give me three. Three. Give me three. Give me three. I would have to have Whitney Houston. I loved Whitney. And I met new Whitney, loved her. Uh I'd have to have Barry White with that deep... hey hey, baby. Gotta have that deep voice. And my man, the MC Hammer, too legit to quit. That's my man. That's my I love that song. So I got to have the hammer. So those three. You got it. Baby.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Well, Eric Dicker, the book. Is called, of course, Watch My Smoke, uh, the Eric Dickerson story. Eric Dickerson and Greg Hanlon. Eric Dickerson, man, thank you so much for your time at this Haymarket event.
3: Thank you very much. It was great to talk to you. Okay, you too. Thanks. Thanks.
2: This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much, Eric Dickerson. Thank you so much, Haymarket Books. I've now got some choice words. Okay, look, if someone is going to compare you to Spartacus, you'd better damn well earn it through your words and deeds. Novak Djokovic, the sour, selfish tennis demigod, isn't even in the conversation. But that didn't stop the father of the tennis great from saying that his son was the world's new Spartacus and the symbol and the leader of the free world. Why would he say such a thing? Because his son, in his father's eyes, is standing up to Corona fascism by refusing to be vaccinated or tamed by any mandates or restrictions. Yet Djokovic's desire to remain a vaccine denier collided with Australia's own policy of denying entry to anyone who has not gotten the vaccine. Djokovic went to Australia, medical exemption in hand, hoping to breeze through any restrictions play in the Australian Open, and win his record-setting 21st major championship. Instead, authorities put him up for several days in what has been referred to in the press as a notorious hostel or a vertical concentration camp used for housing migrants. On Monday, a very irritated judge ruled that Djokovic should be released immediately after just being there a couple of days and overruled the government's cancellation of his visa. Then the Australian immigration minister unilaterally canceled the visa, feeling pressure to show that there isn't one rule for millionaire tennis titans and another for asylum seekers. As of this moment, as I'm doing this, Djokovic is appealing that decision. Look, there are no good guys in this story. Djokovic is no Spartacus. Spartacus, whether as written about in Howard Fast's novel or as played by Kirk Douglas in the Stanley Kubrick classic, cared about the collective. Djokovic seems to care militantly only about himself. There are photos of him the day after he allegedly tested positive in December, posing for photos with small children, everyone unmasked at a charity event. Either his positive COVID-19 test, which he used to justify his vaccination exemption, is a sham, or he was knowingly infecting young children. Whatever the truth, This is all too typical to Djokovic's very blithe and public approach to the virus, which has included hosting large unmasked parties and events. His detention did stoke a healthy stew of Serbian nationalism in Australia, leading to people with Serbian flags blocking traffic and getting tear gassed by police near the hotel where Djokovic was being detained. Serbia loves Djokovic, even though he claims residence in Monaco to avoid paying taxes. Now, tennis commentators say that Djokovic, unlike the smooth Roger Federer or the dynamic Rafael Nadal, thrives on being in a state of antagonism against those around him. If he ends up playing in the Australian Open, and that's a pretty big if right now, there should be enough antagonistic energy to fly a rocket ship. It'll be fascinating to see how the crowds greet him and how he responds. For the Australian government and much of the public, Standing up to Djokovic is seen as an opportunity. They wanna send the message, especially as Omicron rages, that there will be no tolerance for anyone who wants to come into the country without a vaccination card or the kind of ironclad medical exemption that Djokovic did not provide. But the detention of Djokovic also highlights how racist and unforgiving Australian immigration laws tend to be. There are people in the hostel where Djokovic was detained who have been there for years in squalid conditions. Asylum seekers are regularly turned away. In a settler colonialist country with a history of racist and exclusionary policies, these kinds of nationalist acts, even against something as nefarious as COVID-19, can always find support. But it also highlights that there is no nationalist solution to COVID-19. Putting up walls and sticking soldiers with guns on the border makes for a good photo op but it's garbage as health policy. That there are wealthy nations with vaccine access and broad swaths of the global south without it is a legacy of the old imperialism and a reflection of the present reality of a brutally unequal world. Until the nations that hold a monopoly on vaccines share their intellectual and scientific data with everyone, we are going to be mired in this disease. There is no wall high enough to stop a virus. But Djokovic isn't here to point out the racism and injustice of detaining asylum seekers indefinitely, and he is certainly not using his money and influence to try to end medical imperialism and vaccinate the world. Instead, he has shown himself to be nothing but petulant and profoundly selfish. This is one of those stories that highlights just how awful the terms of the political debate on COVID-19 and vaccinations are, and the crying need to reframe these debates. Neither side in this battle has an internationalist or humanistic perspective. Neither this Spartacus with the wicked two-handed backhand, nor the Australian state is rising to this moment. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubblegum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you the listener. So please go to patreon.com/edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com/edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a
0: huge
2: difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com/edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you, make no mistake about it. And now Back to the Edge of Sports Podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to no one. Because this is not a week for Just Stand Up Awards. This is a week about people sitting the hell down. Sit your ass down. And I'm not talking about the racist National Football League, which is now down to one black head coach. Who happens to be mike tomlin who happens never to have had a losing season in 15 seasons oh it's so disgusting in the nfl right now but i'm not talking about the racist nfl ownership structure sitting their asses down even though i could i'm talking about my thoughts about the sports world in general maybe we all need to sit down howard bryant in a recent article wrote the following he wrote it is the entire industry of sports the leagues and their teams governing bodies the players and their unions and fans that has collectively been one of the least responsible entities during the pandemic now i'm a little more forgiving than howard bryan is when it comes to groups like fans or even sports unions because i think the buck really does stop with the commissioners and the sports owners but I appreciate what Howard is doing because it is worth taking a step back and really having a little bit of self-examination about what we're doing, filling stadiums every week, what we're doing, not caring about the fact that you know half a, of an arena in Florida is filled with people who are unmasked and what that does to preventing the slowing of this virus. It's us who have watched uh, pro-athletes you know, become like these kinds of Djokovic-style heroes because of their refusal to accept any sense of responsibility for community health or community solidarity. So the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week, at least for this week, it goes to all of us. So we could just reflect for just a moment about what the sports world is doing to make our lives that much more difficult in terms of enduring and getting through this pandemic. And we are back by popular demand. We have a part of the show that people were missing last week. We call it Jake's Takes, where I talk to my 13-year-old, I guess, housemate uh, about, <laughs> about who we like in the NFL playoffs. Jake, how are you doing?
1: I'm good. How are you?
2: Good, good. I said that the NFL playoffs. Of course, I meant the NFL season, but we're in playoff times right now. Mm -hmm. But first and foremost, let's talk regular season. You pick games for an entire four-month stretch. Our audience has been with you every step of the way. Where did you end up?
1: Well, I ended up with a 56% win rate, totaling a 178-99-1 record.
2: That's not bad. That's profoundly better than a lot of the people like Colin Cowherd and uh, the it's experts.
1: Okay. It's okay. I had right. a really bad like five week stretch, was really
2: kind of like the Ravens.
1: Okay, <laughs> no need to talk about that right now.
2: No need. Playoff. All right, let's let's pick some playoff games. I'm so excited. Do you know that um, there's a holy grail in sports betting, and that's the person who can pick the entire run of NFL playoff games. A lot of people say it's never been done. It has never been done. So let's see it's if really Jacob can get day. it done. Oh, my God. All right, so let's start right off the top. Uh, your Las Vegas Raiders against the Cincinnati Bengals in Cincinnati. Who do you like?
1: Your Las Vegas Raiders?
2: I like Vegas. My,
1: my, okay, come on now. It's, this is going to be a Bengals. I want it to be a Raiders One. This is going to be, in my, I think it's going to be a, 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 a Bengals blowout. Wow. Because the Bengals are going into the playoffs really hot. They were inconsistent throughout the year, but Joe Burrow and the Bengals have really ended the season off nice.
2: Cool. All right, the New England Patriots traveling to Buffalo to play the Bills.
1: I did hear that the weather is going to be pretty terrible there, and last time that happened, you know, 14-10, to 10, low scoring, 19 passing yards for Mac Jones –
2: and the Patriots still oh, won The
1: Patriots still won because of that insane run game, but I'm gonna go with the bills still because of their team
2: yeah i I agree I
1: mean, they, they're just an overall better roster in my opinion, and like you know, I feel like they beat them in almost like every single like if you go down the the list of positions, you know they they beat them in basically everything.
2: It's pretty frustrating that the Bills are in the playoffs and we're not.
1: It's frustrating, but, you know, it'll happen a couple of times.
2: Yeah, that's life. Um, And by we, I meant the Ravens. Yes, I said we. Okay, like I work for them. All right, the Philadelphia Eagles traveling to Tampa Bay to play the Bucks. Who do you like?
1: We're not going to do last AFC game?
2: No, I'm running through it by schedule. So first we're doing Saturday's games.
1: Oh, okay. All right, so... You say that again.
2: Uh, Eagles so, at Tampa Bay.
1: All right, Eagles at Tampa. Um, ooh, yeah, I, I'm gonna go with Tom Brady against an Eagles team that didn't get a, a good win at all this year. Mm-hmm. I, I would be cool. It would be cool if they shocked the world, but I just don't really see that happening.
2: No, uh, 49ers to Dallas to play the Cowboys. I really want to
1: pick the 49ers. I am because, picking the 49ers because I want to see them get a playoff run going but i just i can't see them winning with jimmy g at quarterback and this dallas team looks really nice so give me, give me the cowboys
2: okay okay uh steelers travel to kansas city to play the chiefs
1: this is my bet the house game of the week <laughs> <laughs> uh i'm gonna take the chiefs over the steelers and up uh, i mean they just beat them like 36 to 10 the other week so like this isn't gonna be a fun game to watch
2: well, for some of us who aren't Steelers fans, it might be a fun game to watch. And then um, on Monday night, the Cardinals travel to L.A. to play the Rams. Who do you like?
1: I do like the Cardinals winning this game. I don't think any people have the Cardinals winning this game, but I have the Cardinals winning this game.
2: I'm surprised. I, I mean, especially since the L.A. Rams just signed Eric Weddle to play safety.
1: Yeah, I saw that. He kind of sucks now, though.
2: He is 37. <laughs> um, okay, so... Those are your picks for the first weekend. Then what what happens? Talk to me. Okay,
1: so in the AFC, it would be Titans versus Bengals. And then it would be Chiefs versus Bills. So in Titans-Bengals, I'm going to have the Bengals winning that because I think that the Titans are just not really a good team. I mean, they they are going to probably get Derrick Henry back by that game. I just don't see them getting a win against the Bengals, man. They, they are really hot. Wow, you have the
2: Bengals going to the AFC championship game. You realize yes, that? Yes, I okay.
1: do. Okay,
2: and who are they playing in that championship game?
1: Well, I think that they are going, ah, that's tough, man. Chiefs-Bills rematch last year. Also, the Bills beat them earlier this season in a, in a blowout. <sighs>
2: that's why they pay you the big bucks. Who do you like?
1: Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to take the Chiefs. Smart. I think I'm going to take the Chiefs because I feel like...
2: Oh, wait a minute. I just realized something. You're no. picking the Chiefs.
1: No, I'm not picking the Chiefs. Oh,
2: all right. Yeah, I'm I'm picking the Bills. Wow, last second switch. Mm-hmm. So now you've got Bills-Bengals in the AFC yeah. Championship yeah. game.
1: that's going to be a fun game. Oh, my God. Who do you
2: have? Ooh.
1: I think I'm going to save the AFC Championship game. Let's go to the NFC. All right, you got it. Next,
2: NFC, who do you got? Let's move it along.
1: So this is going to be Packers, Cardinals, and then Cowboys, Buccaneers. Okay, so let's start with Packers, Cardinals, where they had a really good game earlier this season. Russell Douglas, game-winning pick to seal that win. It's gonna be hard without Diop to get this win, man. And I think I don't. I don't think the the Cardinals will stand a chance against the Packers.
2: Okay, so Packers win that, mm-hmm. and then Cowboys Bucks.
1: Cowboys Bucks, man, that's gonna be a great game. I'm gonna take the Cowboys though. I think the Cowboys are gonna go all the way to the AFC Championship. To the what? NFC Championship at least.
2: Ooh, at least. All right, so now let's take it back to the AFC. You got Bengals. You got the. The Bills, mm-hmm. not the Chiefs. You got you got the Bengals and the Bills. Who wins?
1: Two rocket arm quarterbacks. You know, they they they're both really good. I mean, I'm going to pick the Bills to go to the Super Bowl.
3: Wow!
1: Because I just don't I don't know if if the if the Bengals can win in a big time game like that.
2: It's so crazy because you just picked the Bills to go to the Super Bowl. They could also lose to the Patriots. They could also
1: lose to the Patriots. It's crazy.
2: So you got the Bills, but I but I still respect the pick a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, talk to me, Lemon. You got uh, the Cowboys facing off against the Packers. Who goes to the Super Bowl?
1: You know, I said the Packers were gonna make it. We're gonna make the Super Bowl before the season. But you know what the Packers do in the in the NFC championship. They choke. All right? They choke hard. This is gonna be a Bills Cowboys Super Bowl. Hey
2: oh, rematch of the early nineties, two straight Super Bowls. Cowboys, Bills. Wow, and who wins that game?
1: Ah, well, you know, Cowboys coming out with Dak Prescott, you know, Zeke. Healthy wide receiving core. This is awesome,
2: good. picks. This is exciting, Jacob.
1: Yeah, no Michael Gallup for the Cowboys, but you know Cedric Wilson has been stepping up in his absence. Um, Dalton Schultz, you know, made the Pro Bowl. Who bowl do account. you have enough yippy yappy? I have Josh Allen oh, leading his leading his team to to their first Super Bowl. In, in,
2: uh, in, in. ever? ever in every years. All right, you just heard it here first on Jake's Takes here at the Edge of Sports Podcast. Mm-hmm. We have the Buffalo Bills winning the Super Bowl. Against
1: the Dallas
2: Cowboys. OMG, Zomga. I think you just broke the internet, son. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to Eric Dickerson. Thank you so much to Haymarket Books. Thank you so much to the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. Uh, Thank you so much. Be well. Be safe. Mask up. We are out of here. Peace.